This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Um, I recently finished a very good book called uh, Why Nations Fail, uh, co-authored by Darren Ojemoglu, who uh, is uh, joining me now. You know, the inspiration for Extractive comes from history projected to the present. So if you look at many historical institutions, they were designed so that a relatively narrow elite who were politically empowered, sometimes militarily empowered, could use the institutions for extracting resources from the rest of the population. That could be minerals that resonates with people, but oftentimes it was just taxes or labor. So if you look at world history, South Africa being a great example, mm. a lot of institutions were shaped so that the majority, whoever that was in South Africa, for example, black South Africans, could be kept to low wages so that this, whatever surplus they generated could be extracted. And not every aspect of institutions, but many aspects of the institutional structure were subservient to that objective. You know, in South Africa, you know, of course, there were some crazy policies, there were some unintentional policies, but, you know, if you want to understand why, you know, 85% of the 80% of the population is squeezed into a very small area, mm. you know, you cannot understand that without thinking about labor policies. If yes. you want to understand why, you know, there was a color bar and uh, people, according to their, the color of their skin, were barred from, you know, dozens of occupations. Again, you cannot understand that without that extraction imperative. But none of that would have made sense or would have been feasible if, you know, South Africa in 1930s, 40s, 50s was democratic, that there was one person, one vote. So that those economic arrangements were undergirded by political institutions, a particular way in which political power was distributed and exercised in the society. And that also we call extractive political institutions because in the South African case, there was another elite very closely connected to the economic elite that monopolized that political power. And by, for example, excluding uh, black South Africans, colored people from uh, political power, civil society, labor organizations, they enabled to have the political basis of an economic system that was extractive. So that's mm. why the book always thinks about the economics and the politics together. You know, it there are two dimensions of failure. There are many, but two dimensions are particularly noteworthy. One is there is constant failure in that the country is not realizing its potential. Why not? Well, first of all, it's devoting a lot of its labor to just policing of the majority by the minority. So that's a really bad use of resources. Second, it's not allocating its resources in an efficient way. Uh, you know, if there are people within the black community 
who would be better uh, bricklayers than the white, mm. South Africa is never going to make use of that because, you know, under the color bar, you know, okay, sure, the color bar was abolished later. But under the color bar, as an example, you know, black people cannot become bricklayers. Black people cannot become lawyers. They cannot become scientists. They cannot become innovators. They cannot become entrepreneurs, except in some very limited ways. Mm. So all of those are distorting the allocation of resources. But it doesn't stop there. When you suppress their wages, then that changes how you organize agriculture, how you organize mining. Mm. For example, it reduces the need for more advanced technology. It reduces the uh, need for innovation. It discourages their innovation. It changes the structure of the economy. So there are many layers of the economic uh, wastage that extractive institutions create. And that becomes deepened because they are persistent. They tend to normalize this relationship, the elite in charge of everything, including the politics and the economics. But then there's another dimension of failure, which is that even the low-level inefficient equilibrium doesn't last mm. because the human nature is such that even with all the ideological sort of uh, justification of one group being exploited or extracted from, at some point, people are going to start complaining or there will be within elite infighting or there will be other sort of destabilizing forces so that those regimes themselves are often at the verge of even more spectacular failure. And again, if you want to pick an example from your region, Zimbabwe mm. is an example. So, you know, Zimbabwe actually illustrates several aspects of it. You know, uh, Ian Smith's regime was as pernicious as the apartheid regime. And it couldn't last. But the way that, differently from South Africa, so there South Africa was both lucky, different, and, well, better led, but differently from South Africa, its failure its collapse paved the way for another extractive regime, this time under Mugabe. Yeah. Now, Mugabe's regime from the get-go acted like uh, a dictatorship, repressive, killing uh, people who were not part of his ZANU-PF coalition, mm. uh, starting to grab land. But the first, you know... <clears throat> Uh, 20 years were low-level failure, but you see the logic of the system and that it, as it tries to maintain itself and keep everybody who was politically powerful uh, content so that they wouldn't rise up or they wouldn't turn against Mugabe, now then he started going wilder in terms of the land grabs, in terms of printing money and taking the inflation rate, I forget now what it was, but like something like 10,000%. Mm. Uh, you know, so that you see the logic of failure sort of evolve over time from low-level failure of not realizing economic growth 
to the whole economy, political system, healthcare system collapsing. And again, to pick an example from uh, the southern end of Africa, Botswana, other neighboring country, with no great advantage in terms of its colonial heritage or education or road network or, or, or anything, managed a very different type of political system mm. and has grown and hasn't had any of those failures. Of course, it has had political problems, the governing party failing in some dimensions, falling, rising, and so on. But yeah. the degree of stability of economic growth and the degree of representativeness of its institutions are remarkable. Underscoring the fact that yeah. you know, there is no necessity from either colonial history, of course, colonial history has huge effects, but it's not just by itself a pure determinant, and it, it it's not the fact that you're landlocked, Botswana is landlocked, it's not the fact that at some point you find yourself with uh, uh, with the with very uneducated workforce upon independence. Uh, <clears throat> Botswana had probably two college graduates at the time. Mm. You know, you can say Botswana had diamonds, but you know, uh, minerals are very abundant in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Most of them, like Angola or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, have used them as the nexus of civil wars, carnage, genocide, mm. and so on. So Botswana really does demonstrate how setting up even a semi-inclusive system can be transformative for a country of that sort of background of underdevelopment. The power of allowing the markets to operate freely, and that's that's something that happened under Saritza Kama, who was the first democratic president uh, president of Botswana. Yeah, absolutely. As Saritza Kama, like Nelson Mandela, and very much unlike uh, Mugabe or Zuma, uh, demonstrates how the twin characteristics of sort of good leadership and sort of general commitment to the welfare of not just his clan, not just his people, not just his family, but uh, the, its 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 nation can be quite transformative. <coughs> and the remarkable thing about Botswana, and this underscores another point that we make in the book, it is what we call inclusive markets. So it's not like free markets in the same the way that you know libertarians or free market ideologues would mean. Mm. Markets are a very powerful way for allocating resources, but they can be misused in many ways as well. And they get misused when under the guise of markets, it's really a political power that enables some people to have a position. Or they can get misused when some market participants don't have uh, the means to take part in the market. They don't have education. They don't have roads. They don't have health care. It, it fails when monopolies crop up and are not regulated. So it's very important, for example, that Saret Sekama or the uh, BDP, renegotiated subsoil mineral rights and took them away from 
foreign companies. Mm. You know, to a free market ideologue, you can say, oh, that was a that was breaching of contracts. They should have let all of those foreign companies be the beneficiaries. But no, I don't think that would be a the right interpretation of how you make use of markets and build inclusive institutions, you know, uh, that would have given a monopoly that they didn't pay for to those companies. And instead, they found a way of making the markets work and both the Botswana people and the foreign companies actually benefited from it. So what what made their uh, inclusivity successful? Um, at least in those well, I think years. The, the, the first the first thing is that they actually went for an inclusive strategy. Mm. You know, that's the sad thing about Africa. That, you know, there are examples of leaders who tried to build inclusive institutions and failed, but they are the minority. Most post-colonial leaders saw an opening of taking control of colonial institutions further dividing their nation and exploiting it for their economic or political gain. Uh, you know, Daniel Arab Moy, uh, uh, Humphrey Boignier, uh, uh, Mobutu, none of these people had a, uh, had an objective of building inclusive institutions. Gaddafi also. No, Sorry? Gaddafi also. Gaddafi, certainly. Now, one can debate about like people like Nyere. Mm. Was Nyere a well-meaning, honest guy? Probably. Was he successful? Hell no. He was as disastrous as many others in terms of his Ujama policy, uh, you know, collectivization of land, later clamping down on all uh, uh, opposition. Now, of course... One can argue perhaps he wasn't as disastrous because part of his sort of confused socialist ideology was the excellent thing of investing in education and building more of a Tanzanian identity that may have helped later. Uh, the jury's out, but he probably he definitely wasn't as disastrous as Mugabe and Mobutu. But 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 I think there are relatively few examples mm. of. Uh, leaders who went for uh, building inclusive institutions. And depending on when that was, of course, the situation was very different. You know, mm. perhaps it was easier for Seretse Kama to do it, you know, following independence than for Nelson Mandela and the ANC, you know, after 40, 30, 30 plus years of, you know, quasi armed struggle, mm. which, of course, you know, poisons the well. So that's a much bigger success and much required much greater skill in terms of managing that process, which, you know, was done very masterfully by Mandela and others. But 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 what I wanna emphasize is you know, the first thing is that you've gotta wanna do that. So much of Africa um would be considered a failure by the standards, you know, in your book. In the case of Africa it's very clear in terms of income per capita, poverty, education, infant mortality, life expectancy at birth, uh, insecurity, Africa is a world apart, uh, you know, from, from the rest of the world. There are some pockets in Asia, 
in this Haiti, mm. uh, in Central America, I mean, in, in, in the Caribbean, there are a few places in Central America that are not as bad, but, you know, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, that are doing very badly, but, but Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole is a world apart. If you take out South Africa, Botswana, and Mauritius, perhaps Ghana, mm. and perhaps more recently Nigeria, which is still very, very poor and very bad on all of those characteristics like health, education, and so on, but, but it started moving a little bit in the right direction. But if you take out those countries especially, it's like a graveyard. I mean, it's just like failure after failure uh, from the Central African Republic to Zimbabwe to uh, uh, <clears throat> to the, the Congo Brazzaville uh, to Ethiopia. You know, it is it is a complex set of causes. Mm. You know, it cannot be. I don't think it can be just blamed on colonialism. Right. But can also definitely not be understood without colonialism. And both dimensions of colonialism are very important for Sub-Saharan Africa. The first is the slave trade, yeah, uh, which, of course, was not just savagely inhuman, but did have long-lasting effects. Which, which is still being continued in parts of northern Africa today. Right, exactly. And, and, and it's a complex thing because, you know, we pay a lot of, attention to the uh, Western slave trade, which was particularly savage and particularly concentrated, but a long-running Eastern slave trade to the Muslim world was uh, predated it and mm. went on. Both of them were very scarring for the for the continent with uh, you know communities turning against each other, insecurity, uh, <clears throat> people running away from more productive areas so that they wouldn't be captured, militarization uh, so that you could capture slaves. So lots of different aspects of it. The second was the more direct effects of colonialism. You know, South Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, those cannot be understood as effects of slave trade. They were more, you know, Kenya is a mix, uh, you know, Europeans settling, taking the best land, setting up political institutions that looked after their interests in sometimes subtle, sometimes very overt ways, making it very difficult for blacks to compete against them. So there were many dimensions mm. to, to those. But, you know, it also needs to be recognized that it wasn't just that. <coughs> at the time Europeans came Sub-Saharan Africa wasn't like a tabula rasa of mm. primitive peoples no way there were some pretty remarkable civilizations but on the whole it was already a poor continent and that had political reasons historical reasons uh, <coughs> we argue in the book that that itself is related to the institutions that developed in Africa in the pre-modern times, which, of course, got exacerbated their worst characteristics exploited by the Europeans. But none of this is to absolve the faults of the African leaders. Of course. 
Africa was very poor in 1960, but it was still much richer than it was in 2000. So the 40 years that followed, or 30 years that followed independence, you know, so many countries actually regress rather than progress. Right. Black people in South Africa were very entrepreneurial when given the chance at the beginning of the 20th century. Mauritius and Botswana shows show excellent leadership mm. by indigenous people. Uh, you know, Nelson Mandela and ANC's skill in shepherding the process of writing a new constitution, truth and reconciliation commission and creating new South Africa, I think I I can't see many other politicians who would be their equal in terms of mm. you know, pulling off a feast like that. So I don't think there is anything that says it's because it's the indigenous people or it's the black people but it is very much people who prioritize their own personal gain, gain in an environment that was an institutional vacuum. Right. You know, you cannot compare the situation, say, in Kenya or Ghana after independence to say England after say the glorious revolution of 1688 in both cases you have a new government come to power but in one case there is a complete institutional vacuum there are no civil society organizations black people the indigenous people of the continent have been oppressed they haven't been given opportunities but there is the apparatus of indirect control indirect rule repression mm. extraction and uh, and it's just a very tempting thing for them to just take those tools use the existing ethnic divisions or other divisions as a uh, as a strategy for forming their own loyal mm. supporters and go to work to exploit everybody. That would not have been a feasible strategy. That's not what like William of Orange and the parliamentarians could have done in England, Yes, even if they wanted to. So that's where one big difference is. And that's why, you know, <clears throat> when you see the successes like Saret Sakama and Nelson Mantella, it is particularly important to emphasize it of course it's not just character mm. i mean i think there's character has some role to play but you know uh i'm i'm sorry to say that 1994 uh <clears throat> south africa wasn't 1980 uh zimbabwe either you know the situation was more conducive there was a significant part of the white minority who was in favor of reconciliation mm. uh, that they wanted to share some of the economic gains in order to sort of 
allow a modernization of the country. Uh, there was a black middle class emerging. Uh, there was a lot of the economic wealth of the nation that wasn't just mineral or agricultural, so it created room for more of a consensus compromise. So, you know, uh, there was some conditions that enabled mm. more inclusivity in Latin, in, um, in South Africa, and there were leaders who grabbed that opportunity with great success, skill, and integrity. I mean, I don't want to completely rule out cultural factors mm. they do play some roles especially you know <clears throat> the way you would build a democracy in egypt is different from the way you would build it in south africa the way that people approach problems their priorities are somewhat different how you can form coalitions how you can appeal to people there are going to be some differences how people approach hierarchy, there are going to be some differences there as well. But I don't believe culture is a uh, absolutely determining factor. And often within the same culture, you see huge divergences. Mm. South Africa, South Korea versus North Korea is one example we give in the book, which, you know, as a uh, exceptionally homogeneous country. On the uh, at the end of World War Two, same language, same ethnic composition, same economic, same social composition. But then you have two different <clears throat> economic and political systems imposed upon people. To the south of the 38 parallel, uh, it's a more sort of market economy, not a democracy under uh, Syngman Rhee, but certainly under American tutelage, more open to foreign ideas, technologies. And on the north of the 38th parallel, you have, you know, the Juche system, a particularly extreme form of communism, and you see the two equal halves diverge, and by now is perhaps 20-fold difference in terms of income per capita. Mm. But it's not the only one. History is full of such examples. Costa Rica today is so much more successful than Guatemala. They were part of the same kingdom. No difference in the people, no difference in the soil quality, both great coffee. But, you know, in Guatemala, you have a very narrow elite that f form these amazingly coercive coffee plantations. And Costa Rica, as a political choice, goes for a smallholder coffee economy. Mm becomes the first stable democracy of Latin America and one of the most prosperous stable countries of Latin America. The town or the city right on the border of Mexico. I, I've, I've, gone, I've got Nogales. a... Go. Correct, Nogales. yes. Much the same kind of scenario. Yes, yes. Absolutely, you know, same, same city. Yeah. Drawn. Uh, a, <clears throat> a border is drawn. This, the, this is not even a city. It was a village at the time. Mm. Cut in half. <clears throat> and one part under Mexican, the other part under American institutions. And the uh, Mexican part is more than, uh, I mean, less than half the income per capita. Of course, <clears throat> it's a uh, testament to the changing times and the fact that institutions are not cast in stone. Mm. Uh, last year, <clears throat> uh, the Nogales, Mexico, started introducing border check for 
people coming from the north because at the time America was doing a much worse job of containing the coronavirus. <laughs> Excuse me while I have a drink. <laughs> you need more than one. Actually, Western East Germany gives you even a nicer comparison. It's not as extreme as South and North Korea for a variety of reasons. But, you know, first of all, you see East Germany fall behind. A fairly large, but nowhere as large gap as between South and North Korea open up. And then as soon as the Berlin Wall comes down, East Germany starts converging. It hasn't completely converged yet, but mm. it's almost there. Something else you you talk about in your book uh, is that, okay, so could could failure of nations be correlated to geography? And, uh, and we look at like perhaps countries that are uh, near the equator versus countries that are further away from the equator, and you could you could draw the conclusion that geography uh, or perhaps climate has something to do with it. But then you see a country like Singapore, mm -hmm. which is highly successful. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, or you could say <clears throat> it's being landlocked, and you see a country like Switzerland or Botswana mm. that is extremely successful. You say natural resources. You see Botswana with its diamonds and Sierra Leone with its diamonds. Completely different trajectories. Mm. So it's really what we make of our resources. Obviously, you know, again, just like culture, I'm not I don't want to deny that geography mm. could matter in some circumstances, but it's not a primary factor. You know, if you wanted to say, Oh, geography doesn't matter at all, we can have you know, beaches on Antarctica, obviously that's not going to be the case. And there are some extreme climates that are not going to allow you to do certain things. But by and large, humans have settled everywhere on this earth and have developed fairly sophisticated, complex civilizations pretty much everywhere. And the same geographic conditions have led to very, very different outcomes because of institutional differences. Of course, then you might say, okay, well, perhaps there's an element of religion. Perhaps religion plays a role uh, in, uh, in a, a, a successful or failed nation, surely. Again, you know, I think when you go into the details, it's more interesting and rich mm. than looking at it from... 100 miles out but on the whole the evidence that religion has a sharply determining role is also very scant that's what Max Weber thought but you've had amazing successes from Catholics, Protestants Buddhists, Animists and you've had huge variation you know there's some aspects of the religious cultural ensemble that are completely critical. Mm. So in our new book, The Narrow Corridor, James and I, for instance, you know, talk a lot about India. And you cannot understand India mm. without the caste system. That's its own extractive, hierarchical, despotic structure. Well, the caste system is partly religious. It goes back to ancient religious texts. But I would still not say that it's just a religious factor that's determining right. India's underdevelopment. Yes, I mean, again, 
West versus East Germany. Again, mm. West Germany wasn't perfect, had its faults. South Korea wasn't perfect. But compared to North Korea, <clears throat> its institutions were much more inclusive, much more uh, much more open to people from very different backgrounds to have a voice, to have political power, to have economic opportunities. Costa Rica relative to Guatemala, the same thing. Nogales north relative to Nogales mm. south, the same thing. And in all of those cases, you see the divergence go that way. Again, it, the world is more complex. There are countries that grow rapidly under extractive institutions. That's what we call extractive growth in the book. But that has its own logic. It's part of what we try to understand in our more detailed analysis. And it tends to be very different in its character than inclusive growth. But in all of these cases, you see the fingerprints of the institutional structure quite clearly. Well, the Chinese case is very interesting and somewhat complex. First of all, you know, how did China started growing? Under Mao Zedong, China's economy and income per capita did not look so different from some of the sub-Saharan African cases that we just talked about. It started growing when it made major reforms towards more inclusive institutions. First in the countryside, introducing prices, abilities to for uh, township and village enterprises and farmers to mm. start growing whatever crop they wanted, which wasn't allowed before selling some of their surplus, which wasn't allowed before, getting prices that were determined by the market, which wasn't the case before. That led to a huge agricultural boom. Then the next step was an industrial boom. Well, how did that happen? By getting rid of the worst state-owned enterprises and allowing people, often sometimes with corruption and government support, but people to open their own businesses. But also, part of Chinese growth is what we call extractive growth. It's growth led by the state that plays a significant role in the allocation of resources, protects some businesses and gives them secure property rights while sidelines others, so mm. creates a monopoly situation for them. You know, <clears throat> we have seen other examples of extractive growth in the past. Russia under Stalin, and then later Khrushchev grew for also about 40 years faster than the West. Mm. You know, the, the character of that growth is different, and it fizzled out in the case of Russia. And I think there are some internal contradictions in the Chinese case as well, though I would be the first one to admit China has been much more successful than Russia and has been technologically not as backward and copying as Russia. So there are important lessons to learn from the successes as well as the failures of China. No, no, Great Leap Forward was one of uh, <coughs> Mao's plans in the 1950s when Mao wanted to industrialize the country. And, uh, and the way he wanted to do that was by force, and that led to a huge famine that probably killed 20 million people. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, the, the, the reforms that... Uh, they started after Mao's death when Deng Xiaoping came to power, and they go under sort of different names and mm. titles. But yes, Deng Xiaoping uh, 
was a very successful reformer. The historical record is complicated. How much of it is Deng Xiaoping gets the credit for being a brilliant reformer and how much of it is because once Mao's regime fell, there was enough room for people started experimenting and doing things and Deng Xiaoping responded to them. There is some debate on that. So you're suggesting that it could have been a success based on a low base? It was certainly the beginning was from a low base. No longer. I mean, you know, China is still, you know, has grown rapidly over the last 10 years. It no longer has a very low base. It's now a uh, low middle income country. Uh, But, you know, it's not Portugal or Greece. Mm. I mean, we're not talking of like a high middle income country yet. But you're also suggesting that the model, the the extractive model on which China is based, is 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 basically counting the days until it it sees the end. Well, I wouldn't say it's counting the days, but certainly I don't think it's durable in the mm. long haul. I don't think China can come to the level of GDP per capita of Germany with this model. It would have to change. But more importantly, and this is again something that is touched upon very, very briefly, if at all, in Why Nations Fail. But we take it up in our new book, Narrow Corridor. What China did is not a model for Africa. Because what enabled China's growth was an authoritarian model, but built on state capacity. Going back 2,500 years before today, China built a very uh, complex imperial bureaucracy that has a lot of capacity to get things done, control resources, regulate. You know, Africa, African countries typically don't have that, perhaps with Mm. the exception of Rwanda. So if, you know, Zimbabwe or the Central African Republic or Mali were to try to emulate China, they would get the despotism, strong army, lack of freedoms, but they wouldn't get the same growth. I would say what undergirds economic growth are two things. Two layers. At the more proximate layer, I would say you need incentives and opportunities in equal part. If you don't have incentives, people won't use the opportunity. If you don't have opportunities broadly distributed, then you know just the same old people dominate everything, and that's not going to lead to growth or to durable mm-hmm. growth. But those incentives and opportunities come from <clears throat> what we call inclusive markets. So markets are central, but they're not like the free markets where anything goes. They are markets that are embedded in institutional regulations, education, public goods, roads, healthcare, uh, control of monopoly, the role of the state in providing justice, law and order, stability. Mm. So all of those are critical for those institutions and incentives and opportunities. So if you don't have enough of the state, and that requires the state to be present and have the capacity to do it, you wouldn't have the opportunity. You would have a situation where just a small, little, tiny minority 
has all of the opportunities and they become rich at the expense mm. of the rest, but that doesn't bring economic growth. Max Weber introduces a legitimate use, legitimate monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. So, you know, take Lebanon. You know, why is it a basket case? You know, it started the 20th century as well as the post-war era as the most educated, the most cosmopolitan, <clears throat> the most high human capital, high uh, sort of uh, connection to the West in terms of industry and commerce part of the Middle East. But the state has completely been unable to control law enforcement and the use of force. It's in the hands of these militias. So there isn't a police force that enforces laws. There is the Hezbollah that enforces laws. There is the uh, Durze or the Maronite militia or the, or the Sunni militia that enforce force. And that just doesn't work. Nobody provides inter-community public services. The communities don't trust each other. It, that division doesn't work. And if you look at South African nations, several of them are just like Lebanon. How does, that, how does that compare to, say, private security or, or private uh, uh, protection? Well, I think <clears throat> uh, private protection, if it becomes extreme, would have exactly the same role. Now, if you are feeling threatened and you hire a bodyguard, but that bodyguard remains, you know, uh, within the law, mm. gets his authority from the fact that the state has empowered him to protect you and has given him a license to... Uh, to, to, to carry a gun to protect you, that's okay. But if executive orders is much better armed than the police in uh, Rhodesia or <clears throat> Mozambique and protects some people and not others and on their behalf goes and kills other people as private security consultants, then that's mm. as bad or even worse than Lebanon. What would you consider then in our you know in the year twenty twenty as a a successful nation or successful nations? Well I wouldn't call the US right now a successful nation. <laughs> I mean I think every country has <clears throat> problems. You know, when we talk of inclusive institutions, that's an idealization. But look at Taiwan and South Korea. They've both had very successful democratic elections. They've had excellent responses to the coronavirus without the countries turning, the governments turning despotic. But... Uh, following public health guidelines, doing testing, doing tracing, uh, <clears throat> involving the private sector, both as providers in the case of Taiwan, as civil society in the case of South Korea. Germany, again, same thing. 
Then there are other cases, like, you know, Canada, I think, is doing very well on many dimensions, but it also has its own problems. Its economy <clears throat> has problems that have roots going back several decades, and it has <clears throat> mounting inequality uh, that it has to find solutions for. Uh, you can look at Chile, you know, has lots of failures, but on the other hand, uh it has consolidated its democracy as being one of the faster growing countries in Latin America. Would I say Chile is a success? No, it has major failures. But on the other hand, it has a lot of ways in which it shows us how countries starting from difficult situations can start reforming their institutions. Would you call a country like the UAE a success? <clears throat> No, no, UAE, you know, look, in the book, we abstract from countries where there is so much oil wealth that everything else pales in comparison. So when you're talking about diamonds or oil in Nigeria or Sierra Leone, you know, those are some very serious natural resources. But still, even if Nigeria did not waste its oil, it would not achieve an income per capita of $120,000 per head. Mm. That's what Qatar has. It has so much oil that whatever they do, they can't squander all of that. But other than that, that economic level of success that it has achieved thanks to its oil reserves, Qatar is a terrible place. Women are suppressed. It's a theocratic place. It has been one of the supporters of Muslim Brotherhood and some of the more Salafist groups in the Middle East. It will not democratize anytime soon. Mm. So it isn't any anybody's definition of an inclusive regime. Now, United Arab Emirates is somewhere in between. It doesn't mm. have the same level of income per capita as Qatar, and it is much more modern and has a better facade than Qatar. It has more in line with Western norms and values in some respects, but it's the same problems. The book is about the role of institutions, which has got a bad part and a good part. The good part is that it's all in our control. It's not geography. It's not cultural traditions that go back to 2,000 years uh, that uh, condemn us to poverty. But the bad part is that institutions are difficult to change and they're intricate and the details matter. And we have more often than not gotten it wrong because there are many ways in which to get it wrong, and there are many groups who want to push institutions in a way that creates a tilted playing field for their benefits. It's been a fantastic pleasure chatting to you. I've really enjoyed it. Take it easy. Have a good day. Enjoy your drink. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.